As I listen to my interview again with Michelle Moore, it helps me to reflect to the time when I was multitasking and stepped the wrong way and fractured my foot. I was trying to get a lot of things done. I was not mind on task, and that's when I had my demise. And then let's move it over to technology. Technology has enabled us to do so many things, and we have this false sense of being a superman or superwoman. But instead, it is a detriment to what we're doing here to create things, create opportunity, and help others. And so my conversation with Michelle Moore brings that important point to light. She also, having grown up in the tech industry, she has realized that multitasking and technology, we need to be back in control. Let's listen to our conversation. I remember being rewarded at PricewaterhouseCoopers for multitasking, being rewarded for this busyness culture. I used to, when I was recruiting staff to the consulting practice, ask, are you a good multitasker? Well, now I know that that is causing my brain to shrink. It's causing my IQ to decrease every time I get interrupted by a notification. So frankly, I'm scared by what my relationship with technology is doing to me. And I feel that I'm still in that process of mitigating the risks associated with my relationship with tech and augmenting all the positive things that come with tech. So finding this balance, right, as an individual and then as a leader, how do we model the right balance and how do we design work holistically across multiple elements that impact our attention such that we have the right balance. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of Illumination Partners, and I want to thank you for joining me again and my guest on the Drop-In CEO podcast, where I get to speak to amazing leaders and share their insights with you. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, share with others so we can continue to bring you great programming. And now it is my honor to share the mic with my fantastic guest, Michelle Moore, In the world of distraction, we face decreased effectiveness and energy and begin to sustain value creation without sacrificing well-being as a leader and with your teams. As a seasoned big four consultant in tech-driven change and awareness-based transformation, Michelle has a refreshingly unique approach. She brings a holistic work design strategy, then supercharges it with MIT's wisdom practices so teams can focus better. A consultant, 
teacher and speaker, Michelle helps you and your teams create more value in half the time with the right work design. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Deb. So to my listeners, Michelle, thank you for being on the show. You know, one of the things that really resonated with me about Michelle's work is that, first of all, she's worked for some pretty significant companies helping organizations through their business opportunities or challenges, but she also brings together kind of a holistic strategy. We can be very talented at what we do technically, but also the engine or the thing that drives that is is the body and the mind and all of that that goes with. And so she has a very interesting approach to be able to combine the best of our talents as well as making sure that the body, soul, mind, et cetera, is whole in the work that we do. So Michelle, I would love for you to share more about yourself personally, your career journey, and the work that you're doing now. Thank you for that intro, Deb. So I really enjoyed listening to people other guests on your podcast answer this question. And so I'll start with the personal. And what I'd like to share is the cultural diversity of my family. So I come from a family, I was raised speaking German and English. My mother is German, my dad's American. I have an adopted biologically Iranian sister. Then through divorce, I gained a French stepmother. I have a half-brother who is French. Then I married a Russian, so I have a child who's half Russian, half American, now also Canadian, who lives in Armenia, and I myself am trilingual. So I think that is an interesting dynamic that has also informed my career because I love diversity, I love change, and I think that's what propelled me into consulting because I've been in management consulting specifically in performance improvement. And as you said, tech-driven change primarily. And I entered as a, as a senior consultant with PricewaterhouseCoopers in the Moscow office because I had studied Russian at the University of Texas. And so ever since a child, I had a fascination with Russia. I ended up marrying a Russian and also moving to Russia to start that career. But my fascination with this relationship between humans and technology is also a big component of my past work and my current work. And that's because I grew up behind mission control, behind NASA's mission control. So in Clear Lake in Houston. And I went to school with the children of Mike Smith, one of the Challenger astronauts who we lost in the Challenger accident. And I grew up walking around my neighborhood and I could see the life-size exhibition that's in the field in the backyard of mission control of all of these rockets, flown rockets and mock-ups. So there was this relationship with space technology from early on that when I look back at trying to connect the dots of, of why have I always been engaged at this intersection of people and tech, I think it started because I grew up in Houston in this age of, you know, the shuttle launches and all of that happening literally in my backyard. And then one of the first jobs I had was with music television, with MTV. So because I'm half German, I ended up deciding to go work between my degrees in Munich, and I got a job at network development. So I had this relationship with the launch of 
MTV in different East European countries. And that was happening from the German office where I was just a, a lowly assistant of network development. But what happened the year I was there is MTV launched in East Berlin two days after the wall fell down. So I was part of the team that launched this new technology into the just opening up East Germany, right? And so, you know, that's that relationship with tech. And then it got more consulting-y, right? I joined PwC. I became part of the SAP implementation practice. I made partner because I built the first cybersecurity practice in PricewaterhouseCoopers in, in that part of the world. And then was involved in e-procurement. So, so there's just all of this tech flying around. And that's how I'm connecting the dots to what I'm doing today. But I'll pause there for a moment. No, and, and that is fascinating, you know, to my listeners. I'm going to like turn around, talk to my listeners. You know, we have discovery calls. I get to know my guests ahead of time so we can create some magic for you to enjoy. But turning back to you, Michelle. Oh, my. I had no idea that all those things were in your background. So cool. Again, experiencing technology or significant events in culture. Oh my, I mean, you know, the challenger and those, those people that were part of that culture. And then, you know, in Europe being part of the wall coming down and then opening up people's, I don't know, awareness or experiences with MTV. I mean, such a culture thing, you know, sometimes we poo poo those things, but you know, we should often reflect back to where were you when significant changes in culture happened, whether it was a president or could it be the first time you took a helicopter ride? And my son, David, took a helicopter ride when he was about 15 years old in Florida. And that's kind of solidified the bug. He wanted to be a pilot in the military, started getting pilot lessons, didn't finish, but it still was part of those significant events in one's background that changes or influences the trajectory. So I love love your stories. Are there more? <laughs> Plenty more. <laughs> but I am, um, I think for, for honesty's sake, I've only recently connected those dots. I would say this year, right? In, in trying to ask myself and really reflect, well, where is this fascination also today with what I'm doing with our current relationship with technology. And we are in this rapid state of change, and it's only been in the last 10 years with the introduction and vast growth of the smartphone that our relationship to technology has changed so much. It's amped up. And so I feel like we're in that time of change, and we're in this time of change because of COVID now, compounding all of it forcing more heads and screens with remote work that is also there right so so the change is only accelerating so i am experiencing that myself in business i mean it is technology is a blessing in terms of automation and connectivity and reach and and accelerating how much we can get done and at the same time it's a curse it is exhausting because you can always be connected and engaged and working and activity. And at some point, it impacts the person. So I think your work starts moving into that space. And I'd love for you to continue to go there. Yeah. So to summarize what I'm doing today, I am helping professional services teams focus better. 
so that they can do better work, higher value creation or innovative or creative work, but without that sacrifice of well-being, without overtime. And why am I focusing on this group of knowledge workers, right? Professional services teams are all knowledge workers. And I've been a knowledge worker my whole life coming from management consulting. And I remember being rewarded at PricewaterhouseCoopers for multitasking, being rewarded for this busyness culture. I used to, when I was recruiting staff to the consulting practice, ask, are you a good multitasker? Well, now I know that that is causing my brain to shrink. It's causing my IQ to decrease every time I get interrupted by a notification. So frankly, I'm scared by what my relationship with technology is doing to me. And I feel that I'm still in that process of mitigating the risks associated with my relationship with tech and augmenting all the positive things that come with tech. So finding this balance, right, as an individual and then as a leader, how do we model the right balance and how do we design work holistically across multiple elements that impact our attention such that we have the right balance So this is why I wanted to bring you on because this intersection of even myself and, and, and I've seen this in people that I mentor, which kind of came together in the CEO's compass, the book that's coming out later this year. And on this compass, I see typical points around it that get us off track. We're not, we're not at the point of true north or peace of mind. And when I think about my compass points as it aligns to your work, it's around the people dimension. And people, yes, are somewhat like a machine, knowledge workers. They can execute a multitude of things very quickly. But at the same time, sometimes we lack the critical skills in in good decision logic. So sometimes a superhuman person who is really good at their job will burn out, may not achieve the desired impact because they don't know how to prioritize. They don't need to, they don't know what is activity-based versus something that's impactful for the greater good. And so while technology is an enabler here, We need to take back the human side to start deciding what's value added, what do I not have to do, what is the priority, and feel accomplished by the end of whatever time period versus being controlled by the machines. So... (laughs) I agree. Great insight. Keep keep going, keep going. I agree. So, So I see the teams that I work with make a couple of common mistakes. So one of the mistakes, of course, is multitasking or what we know to be now. There's no such thing as multitasking, but task switching is a problem. But you mentioned this, not knowing how much undistracted focused work time do I actually need based on my role and based on my personality right? Because those two things both influence how much of, you know, according to Cal Newport, deep work is work that creates new value, is difficult to replicate, or is teaching us a new skill. And so deep work is critical for any professional services team or knowledge worker to actually sustain relevance in the market or to sustain market advantage. And if we don't know how much deep work time 
do we need to be doing based on our role? How are we going to organize our day? And the other thing that's fascinating, when I first read this, I thought, oh, I want to be doing eight hours of deep work time per day. Then I'll create, then I'll be super innovative and create tons of value, right? But the human mind can only do between two and four. And the average person really is doing a great job if they're doing truly focused, undistracted work for one to two hours a day. And that doesn't sound like very much, but it's powerful. So I would love to, I don't know, maybe get some free consulting here. So let's just bring it real. So there's two personas, myself, an entrepreneur, sole business owner, wear many hats in business development, content creation, servicing clients, as well as back office administration. And then there's the person who may be a transactional worker. Maybe they're a customer service person. They have to do clicks on the keyboard and answer phones, et cetera. When we think about these two personas, what would be an optimal amount of deep work for somebody like me and deep work for somebody who's doing a, a transaction within an organization? So step one is defining for yourself, for your company as the leader, what does value creation mean other than making money, right? How, when am I creating value? I'm creating value. You're about to, you've, you've written a book, right? That's a huge value creation asset. And there are other ways that you create value for your clients. So, you know, you list those things out as this is where I really need the undistracted time so that I can write my book chapter in a faster without compromising the quality. And then for, for, so that, that's, for example, you know, a little beginning for how to determine that for your own role at any given time, it might shift during the year as well. Right. And then if you look at a, a more logistical worker, right, everybody has a balance between focused work and more logistic logistical work, or, or sometimes you can call that reactive tasks. If you're a customer service person answering a phone, you're always reacting to the phone call. And that doesn't mean it's not valuable, right? So I in no way want to say that logistical work is not valuable. It's just that there is work conducive to task switching, and then there is work that is less conducive to task switching. And that's this difference between the focused work versus the logistical work. So a more like you use the word transactional, a person doing more transactional or operational tasks doesn't have as high of a need for blocked, undistracted, focused work time as do knowledge workers, for example. And then you factor in personality and mindset as well, right? You know, it's a journey. So Michelle, I just love to change it up a little bit. This has been an amazing conversation, but one of the things you talk about that I think is quite interesting is getting out of your tech and back into your body. Cause we talk a little bit of your work is holistic. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. So it's, it's about finding the right balance. And when we are doing remote work, you know, I have found, of course, in this pandemic and in Canada, we're still in lockdown. So my head is in a screen all day long, which means my eyes are getting tired because I'm looking at faces in Zoom boxes. And it means that I am not using my full capacity to be creative or to be able to sense the room, right? When you're in a physical meeting, you can sense the room as a human being, whether you know it or not, you're, you're doing it intuitively. And I think the question is, how do we sense the room 
in Zoom or any other online meeting. And if we can just remind ourselves, you know, this simple thing to pause, feel the feet on the ground, feel the butt in the chair, and can we sense into, number one, the physical space that we're sitting in, and then can we sense into this nebulous virtual room that we're also housed in? And one of the cultural design elements of work is what is our behavioral norm around cameras on or off? Are we starting a meeting with checking in how people are doing or even giving them this choice of, hey, let us know if your camera's off. Does that just mean you're tired? How are you doing? You know, give people the freedom to have the camera on or off, but also kind of checking in as to why. Because sometimes people will opt for camera off because they want to multitask in a meeting. Well, then the question is, have we designed the meeting correctly? Does everyone need to be here if some people don't actually want to be here? So there's so many layers of meeting design, space design, and agreed upon behaviors. And what I'm finding in the last 18 months or so is that many of the teams I'm working with have behaviors that they all do, but nobody ever agreed, oh, this is how we're going to behave. It's just happening. And then when they reflect back, oh, do we want to behave like this? Well, why are we all behaving like this? Do we have fear of missing out? Is that why we're joining everything? Or do we really have to be there? So interesting conversations arise when we ask the question, well, if you were to write a policy about that or a written agreement, hey, this is how we're going to behave on Zoom or this is how we're going to behave in Slack channels or whatever. It's very different and different teams will have different ways that they want to behave with each other. These are really, really good points. Again, it was a new norm, normal, I'm not so sure. And with anything, you know, often when we think about uh, kicking off new teams, projects, we usually start with ground rules, you know, show up on time, laptops down, et cetera. And I think the pandemic kind of caught us off guard a little bit. And we didn't go back to the basics of just setting ground rules and how we're going to connect with humanity. So these are really, really good points. But I want to get into your work. You blog quite a bit. And there was something that you wrote back in April, hopefully you can remember back to April. I know it's been a crazy time, but you talk about why I don't believe that productivity is up. And specifically, you made a very interesting point. Stop measuring humans like machines via output per hour, et cetera. Instead, begin measuring effectiveness in alignment with the higher purpose that the organization is trying to achieve. So I agree, but how does one do that? So I had the experience of not being aligned with my purpose for many, many years. I, you know, I think many have this experience being in a, in a large corporation like PricewaterhouseCoopers or any large corporation. I didn't realize that I was just being carried along by this large system called a corporation. And I never thought about what is my purpose? What should I be doing? And productivity, or the reason I don't like to use that word anymore, rather I like to use the word effectiveness, enables us to focus, sorry, purpose enables us to focus. So if we are actually aligned with our own individual purpose, or if we simply firmly believe in our organization's purpose, our ability to focus, i.e. and be effective increases exponentially. So that's this link between purpose and focus. 
so important. And that's one of the watchouts that I talk about in my book as well is the purpose, but more in the context of performance, because so often performance is, did you reach this particular goal, this report, et cetera? And yes, that's all you're going to get out of people. But when we think about performance, it really starts at the top. Here's our purpose. We want to be number one in whatever category it is. And certainly maybe your salespeople, your customer service people say, yep, we got it. But when we look at everybody, does everybody have the capability to do what is needed to achieve the purpose? And are everybody aligned? Is everybody aligned? Do we know what our individual job is towards that purpose? And if we don't, performance is going to be off. We think we have it. We're going to you know, whip the people until they get their particular performance. But performance is really the alignment of their purpose and their job function and reaching the greater goal. That's impact. That's effectiveness. Productivity, if you only manage to that, that's all you're going to get. It's just a number, a transaction, a number, and you may not get the impact. I'm so passionate about this topic. <laughs> I love that you are because I'm I'm in agreement with you. And I believe that a, a purpose statement is different from a goal statement or or is, is different. So purpose can have metrics, but this example that you just gave about let's have these sales targets. For me, a sales target is not a purpose. It is simply a number that maybe we're measuring in our team. But when I think about purpose, it is what is the value? What is the legacy I'm leaving behind? Either in terms of social impact or in terms of simply great customer satisfaction. So these days, or since I moved to Canada 10 years ago, I've been very much exposed to a lot of social entrepreneurs. And my daughter is a social entrepreneur. So it's very new for me to be in an environment where you have people in a for-profit company, but linking their impact to one of the 17 sustainable development goals. And we all know as social entrepreneurs that there is no purpose without profit. So it's not a nonprofit, right? So, so I consider a real social entrepreneur to be a company that is a for-profit company but that links the work that they're doing to a social impact outcome that is potentially linked to one of the sustainable development goals. Hmm, that's really helpful. I am going to be checking the drop-in CEO, Illumination Partner, Purpose, and see if in the work that I'm doing, it is aligned to something greater social. I want to make sure that the right people hear and understand and, and say, you know, maybe I'm that person or that company that maybe needs your services or insight in order to get greater effectiveness. What does that company look like that is at that point where they need you? And, and if you have a story of somebody who was at that point and you started to engage with them, what was the impact of that work? Yeah. So the current story of a tech company that I'm working with is that they have grown really fast, in particular during COVID. And they are experiencing this problem of too many clients in the sales funnel, winning too many deals and having burnout rate go up or people requesting sabbatical going up. And they're the ones that told me, Michelle, we have a Slack on crack problem. They use Slack as their, you know, communication medium for internal communications and, and some with clients. But the key pain point is people have too much on their plate. They can't hire fast enough. And so the question that we're looking at right now is, 
how do we define value creation? How do we help people reduce the overtime? Because when a calendar is open and free to book time in by anybody, right? When you have this free booking system, the day gets booked with back-to-back Zoom calls with hardly time to go to the bathroom. And then the report writing or the strategic thinking that needs to be done for the client or the coding for a software has to be done at night or on weekends. And so no wonder people, so that's the biggest pain point in COVID. And also I think Deloitte just came out with a new burnout report that the burnout risk is up from 60% of North American employees being at risk of near-term burnout to now, at this point in the pandemic, over 70% risk. So that's across all North American companies, but professional services teams, I think, that includes tech teams or any anybody who thinks primarily for a living, because these teams made the easy transition to remote work in COVID, they're getting more business. So let me think about this. So we're going to be bringing this to a close in a little bit, but all of this I so agree with, but for either... A CEO or business leader that may be at that point where they're going through growth and they don't want to burn out the people because it's the people that make things happen, or perhaps an individual within a company that is feeling this, what are one, two, or three tips they can do now that they can start gaining control versus the machines controlling them? So I think number one is being the leader that asks empathic questions. So that really, because people may be shy or afraid of losing their job or afraid of appearing as underperformers and may not share how stressed they are, especially those parents with children at home working remotely, have a whole complexity in managing their work compared to those who do not. So actually in confidence, asking the question and really listening, how are you really doing? So sensing into the current state with an empathic conversation, with a really listening conversation. I think that's number one. Number two is just assessing what is on the plate for each person based on their role. And people will often not say, I have too much on my plate. Some will, some won't, right? But really looking at, and maybe in a collaborative way, understanding who has too much and who is okay with sharing this or postponing this, maybe having a conversation with a client about a deadline. And then the simple thing to do is just doing a quick assessment on, you know, maybe existing assessment tools or or like this tool that I have on my website, score your focus, understanding in a quick two-minute survey how am I doing in terms of my well-being, in terms of my ability to innovate, in terms of my ability to focus? This quick scorecard measures it in those five areas that impact attention. So understanding the current state and then collaboratively with the team coming up with the solution that makes sense so that it's not threatening to others. 
I think this is just um, a really great point to just bring it home for the listeners. I, too, went to Michelle's website and took the assessment. And I'll tell you, I'm probably doing better than when I was in corporate. I didn't know to ask those questions. I don't think I deeply listened or asked the questions, how are you really doing? Because we were all consumed and stressed. But I would absolutely, if you're an individual or perhaps a senior leader that is starting to feel perhaps the growing pains of success, to pause a little bit and think about maybe assessing where you're at because you want to be there for the long term. So, Michelle, if you could just share a little bit more, some closing thoughts and how what are some resources people can connect with as well as yourself? Sure. So so that first resource about the free assessment called Score Your Focus is simply on my website at mindequity.ca. That's CA for Canada. So mindequity.ca. And you'll see a green button that says Score Your Focus. And as a leader, to do that first and then share with your team, well, this is how I scored. This is how I might shift my behavior in terms of technology or my behavior in terms of culture and how I'm behaving with my team, et cetera. And the other source, I have some free guidebooks on my website as well under resources. There's a guidebook to unplugging. So one of the recommendations, simple recommendations that anybody can do. And if a leader spearheads this and says, why don't we all as a team engage in 24 hours of unplugging from Friday night, 6 p.m. until Saturday night, 6 p.m. And let's encourage our families to do that with us. And then come back Monday and share with the team, what was that experience like? So I have a guidebook for the Canadian day of unplugging that gives some ideas on on what to do during that 24-hour time. Of course, you're sleeping hopefully eight hours of the 24 hours of unplugging. So that's a very simple thing. And a super simple thing related to our relationship with tech is any time that you are creating a deliverable or any valuable asset, put your cell phone in a different room on silent. The University of Texas, where I went to school, did research that shows even if the phone is completely off, if it's in front of us, our cognitive ability goes down by 50%. I find that really hard to process. I need all the cognitive ability I need, so I better start putting that phone in the other room. But I do have a Fitbit if it rings, my, if my kids are calling. <laughs> This has been an amazing conversation. I am grateful, Michelle, for having you as a guest on my show. You've been fantastic. You've shown people how to get a hold of you. I do wish you great success. And for any leader out there that is at that wonderful place of potentially growing exponential and you want to preserve your people and their energy, reach out to Michelle. So thank you for being a fantastic guest. Thank you for your insights as well, Deb. It's been a fun conversation. All right, be well. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, The CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass Assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.